if I might use an example, we sometimes use a, a, a little bit of an example on you know, a, a safety project we did, and this, and we said to the CEO, um, it, you can put in programs, you can put in systems, you can put in training programs, you can bring in awareness campaigns, you can do whatever you want, but if you exit the factory gate without putting on your seatbelt, you have destroyed the whole project in one small act. And the higher you are in the organization, the more visible that becomes. There must be a true belief in the value of human beings and the value they bring to organizations and in their unconditional dignity and worthiness. And if those things play out as values in the organization, I think change becomes a lot easier. Have you ever gone through change in your personal life or at work and thought to yourself, there must be a better way to do this? Welcome to On Change, the podcast that explores change that works and the people who make it happen. And now from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Pietro Dupisani. Today I'm speaking to Ray Crocom, who is the owner of Indigo Sky Transformation, and they have a very distinct take on change management, which we will explore in this podcast. Good morning, Rek. Welcome to Solid Gold Studios. It's lovely to have you in the studio this morning. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Why did you choose to do change management as your profession? I guess there comes a point in time in everybody's life when a reinvention of a career becomes an appropriate thing to do. I've actually worked in um, sales and marketing for quite a few years and in supply chain in the chemical industry. I actually did some work in the gold mining industry as well, but we did more on the, on the, on the metallurgy side. And um, at some point in time, one asks questions around, uh, this is what it looks like in the front side of business, doing selling, you know, selling and, and marketing, and also in supply chain work. So you have a lot of engagement with external people, and you get to a point where you say, I need to do something different. I need to do something more meaningful and something that more, let, let's say, speaks, uh, speaks a bit more to your essence. Um, so that's where I started with change management. It kind of happened by by default because there was an opportunity. But the real the real focus of moving into real change management, the way I see it, actually started with a mountaineering expedition, and it and it was born from dealing with things in my own personal life. So personal change and how to deal with that for me was almost the trigger for me to to, to do this. So my approach to change also is very much people-focused and not so much about processes and technology and tools and templates. And um, in case you were wondering about things like Indigo Sky, it was actually born on the Himalayas. I did a, a three-day expedition climbing on the backside of Mount Everest where it connects with Mount Lhotse. Did a summit there in 2013, and it was actually my own personal transformation journey that got me to that. And so the name Indigo Sky also comes from the color of the sky when you stand on the summit at that altitude. So that's where the name comes from. That's always a very special place for me because mountains are for me special places. They represent for me personal transformation because of what I've done there and the reasons why I actually went there in the first place. Mm. So that, that shaped the way I do change. Yeah, so there's so many definitions for what change management specifically is. What would you say is your definition? What do you see change management to be for you personally? Mm. 
I think, I, I want to say two things. I think firstly, my, uh, what I've seen in the industry after doing it so many years is there's a lot of confusion and I still find this in some research reports that people confuse a change with or managing a change with people change management because people talk about process improvement and they talk about a transition state moving from, a, let's call it an as-is state to a to-be state, which of course is true. And those, and those require some technical interventions and it requires project plans and it requires steps to actually get there. I think we hopelessly neglect the people side of change and, and honestly, at a psychological level, hopelessly underestimate the impact it has on people. So my definition of change management is people transition. It's not the technical side, the tools, the templates, the methods. Uh, those are really all the same. Um, they're useful. They're useful because it, it, it provides milestones and little guiding lights for us to actually focus on and it, it gives some, some outcomes for us to, to look for. But for me, it's about the people side of it because people really matter. And uh, I think we underestimate that hopelessly. Yeah, definitely. I think if you look at any sort of large transformational change or even a techno technological change or an IT change, anything like that, it's quite easy to do the technical side. It's easy to pull up a project plan. It's easy to go, we have to get from this state to that state. But it's how do we actually get people over the line? How do we get mm -hmm. them to really adopt the change. So what is the, the secret to that? I mean, how do we make sure that people accept the change, take it as their own and want to be a part of it? Is there any sort of techniques and that you use from a psychological mm. perspective to be able to do that? Uh, again, I want to say two things about it. Um, there is a thing called a change cycle and we all, we've all seen the curve. But we, and we all talk about the curve and we all show the slides on the curve and we, you know, we give it names and we, we have a little narratives about this change curve. But we never spend the time on what does it actually look like. And so what I do is I prefer to take people, I do two things. I first look at a landscape for, for change, which really is about the culture and the climate of the organization. Very often there we find things like change saturation, Climates that are not conducive for change, uh, overload, imbalance between work, re you know, job resources and job demand. So I, I prefer to do things like climate studies and culture studies before a change even starts and almost prepare the landscape for that to happen. Then what we often forget is um, people change does not just happen in organizations. There's a lot more personal change that goes on for people outside of the organization. And that requires what I would term emotional and, um, and mot motivational and, and energetic wellness um, because you require energy to actually get through a change. And very often, many of these changes are, are undealt with uh, and we, we neglect them in organizations. It's actually inconvenient because for organizations because there's a project plan and the project plan requires certain milestones and certain timelines and it forces the people learning journey into the same timelines. It doesn't work. Really, it simply doesn't work. And that's probably one of the reasons why when, whenever you pull up reports on perceived or so-called um, failed change efforts, and when I say fail, I mean really 12% of initiatives brings full, brings full benefit to realization, uh, about 50 60%. You know, there are various stats around that that delivers half of the, of the value. And then there are the 40% that completely dismally fails, mm. which are really just like, you know, water under the bridge. And it's, it just doesn't work at all. So preparing people and actually letting them understand how they personally deal with change by giving them skills to do so 
are not really change management methods, but it, it's about helping them understand how does change affect them personally of, of whatever kind, where maybe it was just an unresolved thing like um, a divorce or the loss of a parent or a diagnosis of an illness or a rebellious child or whatever it is, and, and, and let them experience how to resolve that properly because it, those are changes at the very personal level. So we use the change cycle to actually take them through a two-day workshop and prepare them for that. That firstly lands accountability for them to say, whenever change comes your way, you actually have personal skills to deal with this, regardless of the nature of the change. It does speak a little bit to personal accountability about how do you deal with change. And as a logotherapist, that's something I would stand for because when we, when we define responsibility, it simply means the ability to respond to whatever life chucks at you. We have choices to make in terms of that. And um, making the right choice is important. So I use that to prepare the landscape for people to go through change first. And very often, uh, we can't say that, maybe it's the other thing I want to say, when we talk about people change and organizational change, very seldom are these changes really beneficial for employees. Uh, if we're really honest about it, it's more about organizational efficiency and effectiveness, and it's about making more money or uh, gaining market share or improving processes. And, and therefore, what matters to the, to the managers ain't what matters to the employees. <laughs> yeah, you're so right. So I attended the Association of Change Management Professionals conference in 2017 in New Orleans. And one of the messages that really stuck with me at that conference was in one of the talks that I attended on communication it was all about you can do change fast or you can do it with engagement. And I think that ties in very nicely with one of the concepts that I read on your webpage mm. around you have to go slow to go fast. Mm. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about the, that whole concept mm. of having to go slow to go mm. fast? Yeah, I, I guess in project terms, we can call it something like front-end loading um, because for some bizarre reason, we, we put people through a change process. We, th we think we plan for timelines for the people learning journey as well. Um, and often the people journey takes a much, takes much longer than the, um, than the actual project plan. So that's the first thing. Collaborative change methods, um, I find incredibly useful where we engage with a lot of dialogue. And, and when we can call them many things, we can call them sense making exercises. And there are many techniques we use. So I, I prefer to use a term called dialogic change management, which is a, a relatively new emerging theme in the world of OD. And it really means there are different ways of engaging employees around change. But I think the trick is if they can own it, even if it's a negative change, and, and they make their own benefit out of this by making choices about how they respond to this change, and, and you give them opportunity to find benefit for them rather than try and sell them with a roadshow or a presentation pack or you send the sponsors in or whatever or, this, or the consultants, whatever we do. There are many techniques we use. So we use open space technology. We use World Cafe style facilitation. We use generative dialogue. We use values assessments. There's a host of collaborative change methods that we deploy before that time. And it takes time before, before the change actually happens to prepare people for that. But once they, once they start getting a bit of ownership for what they can do with this, and they find the benefit for themselves, the need for selling it becomes less. I, I guess what, what's challenging is when organizations go through change is where is this point of transformation? So is it something that, that happens before the time when, um, let's, let's call it something like, uh, I got to fix the roof before the rain comes, as an example. 
uh, very difficult for employees because things are going so well, so why do we need to do this? But very often, it's more reactive, and we find then we need to start selling to the employees, oh, but we're going to lose market share, or there's trouble brewing, brewing on the horizon, you know, we need, to do, we need to do things differently, we need to improve things, and that's always a, a change on the back foot. But even so, I think you know, using collaborative change methods before the time is, is a lot more useful by engaging in dialogue and engagement with employees. Yeah, I mean, one of the, the definitions for change management, if you go through all of the textbooks and all of that, they'll say that change management is the process of each individual transformation of each person to get from whatever current state we're currently in to some mm. future states. And each employee will go through some sort of process in their own mind to get from where they currently are to where they think they need to be or the organization thinks they need to be. So I was very interested to hear, you used earlier the word logotherapy when you were answering one of my previous questions. What is that all about in, in change management? Logotherapy, the word logo relates to the idea of logos, which means, which means um, it, it's a spiritual term really, uh, and it's about meaning. Okay, it's about meaning, and so you, when you look at the website, it, it talks about meaning-centered living and working. And it, it, it's a work that was born from the works of Viktor Frankl, which is known as the third school of um, Viennese psychotherapy. And we know the Freuds and the Adlers and the, and, and the Jungs of the world. Um, he had a different philosophy. So when we talk about psychological terms um, and psychotherapies, those, those you will find in Jungian terms or with Adler or Freud, but um, the idea of Logos means that Logos is deeper than logic. So it has a spiritual inclination towards it. Uh, it's not a religious thing per se, but it means, and, and, what, and what Logotherapy is really all about is it asks questions around existence. So it's, it's, it's really about existential analysis. The work was born from Viktor Frankl himself, um, who was a Holocaust survivor. And his philosophy on logotherapy was born in, well, let's call it inside the pit of hell because he found himself in, in Auschwitz and those places. And, and he realized there that, you know, you can take anything from any person, but not his choice, which really was the ultimate freedom. And so when we talk about responsibility, the way he defines it, it's about the ability to respond daily, hourly to put choices to our conscience and make decisions about what's the right thing to do here. And um, so he was not he was not not into the positive psychology of finding happiness per se. Um, for him, happiness was an end result of living a meaningful and a purposeful life. And every day, when we find challenges in our lives, whether it's organisational change or losing a friend or going through an illness or something, we always have a choice to make. Um, sometimes it's a uh, something that which is a fate that's just dealt you, like somebody loses their life. There's nothing you can do about that. All that remains for you is your attitude towards the situation. But he also speaks of things like creative values and, and, and experiential values. And creative values really is the way we do work. And, he, and his view was that regardless of the content of the work we do, the choice we make on how we do that always remains a choice. And we can either try and find meaning in what we do or we can become victims and complain about it. At the root of it sits the idea of accountability. And to sum this up, he actually wrote a letter to Franklin Roosevelt at the time um, of the Second World War, and he said, you have the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast. I recommend you put up a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. Um, so that gives us an idea of, um, you know, we, we, we can make choices and good choices. 
by putting life's demands to our conscience and, and asking ourselves not so much what we want from life, but what is life demanding of me right now? And that really becomes the essence of existential questions about purpose and meaning. And that's what logotherapy is all about. But how do we apply that? If you think about a corporate environment where we've got people working in various departments, doing various things for the company, how do we take those concepts and transform them into something that we can use in a change management project or a change project? How do we apply that, that knowledge? I've actually developed some workshops where people, um, for instance, we go through a change process. We, we piloted this thing in Ghana as an example. We went through a workforce transition process and people were going to lose their jobs. And we, we used some video clips um, around Anne Sullivan, um, who dedicated her life to teaching Helen Keller as an example. And just show people, you know, the possibilities that exist for them when they try and find purpose in what they do. And that they do have choices to make. So the choice really is about, am I going to become a victim of this thing? Or am I going to become a victor of this thing? The choice always remains. And I guess we have to also accept that not all people will do so. Uh, we know that we sometimes lose people in change processes. And that's also okay. Uh, I guess that's an inevitable thing to do. But we try and land the idea of what does your accountability for your own life look like? Because this has happened now. Whether the organization or you benefit from the process is what it is, what are your choice going to be and, and how are you going to respond to the situation? So we do run workshops to actually support people in terms of exploring meaning and purpose for themselves in the change process. And often um, we do things like run these workshops for them to find alternatives for themselves. So let's say, for instance, that it does result in job losses. Um, we would actually run some workshops for them to discover other things they can do but really it's about shifting them from being a victim to becoming something, you know, actually making a good choice about that this, this hand has been dealt you, how will you respond to this? You mentioned that you did some work in Ghana, and I imagine you've done work all across the world, or I know that you've done work all across the world, and so have I. And the question I'd like to ask is, what role does culture play in a, a transformation or change project? If we talk about culture, I'd like to maybe put three things in place. So first one is about strategy, strategy and culture, strategy, culture and climate. And all those three things for me goes together. Question we could always ask is if we do a change initiative and we've done some of this work before and it does not deliver something on the, strate the strategic agenda of the organization, why are you doing it in the first place? Because it eats resources, right? The climate for me is very important um, as a manifestation of culture. So if we can say that climate is the experience of culture, there's a lot of organizational constructs there that are useful for us to actually build and fix that brings up things like employee engagement and brings up things like energy levels for people to actually be more productive in a change process too. So it sets them up for that. Uh, and the third thing, of course, on culture is um, if you have a toxic culture, one where you don't have participative management, where, for instance, where there's a, a not a true belief in the value and the dignity of human beings, which is another construct of logotherapy, by the way, you're going to probably bulldoze the change through with limited results. So for me, um, culture starts at the top. It starts with the CEO and the excos, and um, there must be a true belief in the value of human beings and the value they bring to organizations and in their unconditional dignity and worthiness. And if those things play out as values in the organization, I think change becomes a lot easier. 
And if we talk about different countries, for instance, you know, it must be very different to try and implement a change in Saudi Arabia versus Ghana versus South Africa versus the United States. I think the question I'd like to ask there is about what what is always the same okay, in terms of implementing the change project? What is what never changes? Each pro- no matter which country in, no matter who you're working with, which bunch of people, what is always the same? People want to have a sense of belonging <laughs> in the first place, and they want to be heard. Sometimes it's you know sometimes the level of resistance is is a pure thing of I just want to say how angry I am about this thing, and once it's done, it's done. So I think those are the two things. It's about do I belong in this place? Uh, do I make the right choices here? Are there opportunities for me? And am I being heard? And where have you tried a, tried a specific change management approach in a specific country or a specific culture? We're completely expecting it to work, and then it didn't work at all. I, I guess Ghana was an example, um, but I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily because of the, the people side of the change. Because that for me remains the same. Uh, we were implementing an Oracle system and the system didn't work. So we did everything we needed to do. The communication was there. The training was quite intense. The, um, the stakeholder management was done well. The sponsorship was present. All the nice things we normally do in change management. But the minute they switched on the system and the report didn't generate the way it was supposed to generate, everything flew out the window. And, and, and maybe the second thing I want to say is that the, the way I understood um, how they understand being employed was uh, a, a different thing for them. Because we assume, you know, we assume that being employed or being unemployed has a certain consequence for people and they have a certain level of dignity or a sense of worthiness of that. But culturally, those are, they are, they are quite, quite big differences in a place like Ghana, for example, where people People lose respect in the communities in which they operate if they, um, if they lose their job. So it's not so much about not having income or security, but it's about their standing in the local community as well. So that was a bit of a surprise for us. Rick, I'm going to ask you a couple of rapid-fire questions to get to know you better. So don't think about it too much. Just answer straight off the bat as I ask you. What do you have in your pocket right now besides your cell phone? My car keys. What is the one book you would recommend to anybody to read? Dialogic Organizational Change Management Practices. Who is the person you look up to the most in life? My father-in-law. What do you spend a silly amount of money on? Building wooden ships. You do a lot of traveling. Uh, you like to travel. What is the next country on your bucket list to visit? Switzerland. Why? I have an opportunity in Switzerland. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's not an opportunity, I mean, if you just had, if you could oh, go if anywhere, I, oh, if, you could, if you could go oh, anywhere, you could anywhere. I, where oh, would you go? I'd go. Yes. Ba- I'd actually go back to Tibet. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Thick base or thin base? Thin base. There's a number of big changes you can go through in your life, like getting married, moving house, starting a new job, loss of a loved one, imprisonment. Uh, selling your house, personal injury or illness. Have you gone through any of those things recently and how does that change your approach to change management? Very recently we've had a suicide in our family. I have been through a job redundancy process of which I was the lead but affected by the process. I have lost more than one family member. I have relocated a couple of times um, from different cities as well. 
And how does that change your approach to change management, that personal connection to change? It's a reminder for myself of what, how painful the change cycle can be and how important it is not to get stuck in a certain place. So it's okay to have a pity party, but it's not okay to be stuck in a pity party. So it's about actually applying your own knowledge on how, how you feel, think, and do about change and then move through that quite rapidly as best as you can. Yeah, I think it also gives you empathy towards others who have to go through change, even either personal or in a corporate environment where you're going through a big change process, is to understand that people have to process it. They have to get through it. They have to um, make it their own. Otherwise, it's never going to, they never, it's never going to sit with them and they're always going to be uncomfortable with it. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Rick. That wraps up our rapid fire round. Um, So we spoke about the fact that you went into change management by chance, which I think happens for a lot of people. You start with a technical project and then realize sort of halfway through the project that, wow, we can't do this without taking people along. So people sort of drift into change management and then stay there because it's so important. But on your website, you use the term possibility practitioner. What is a possibility practitioner? Possibility is having a positive outlook and always finding an opportunity in whatever comes your way. So it is also an idea that was born from logotherapy in my mind, that possibilities are always there to be found. You have just to be open for that yeah. and go and look and find for them. Yeah, that's, that's the idea. You've got to go find the opportunities and possibilities. Yeah, you seem to also like to mix adventure with change management so and that's that's quite interesting to me so what are some of the things that you've done in the past combining adventure and change management i think the first thing is i raced motorcycles for a long time uh, for many years of my life i quit this in 2011 the mental focus required in racing superbikes is very extreme uh, it is also it brings a feeling of being very alive as well you make, you've got to make a lot of decisions on the run, uh, very quick decisions, which are life-threatening decisions or life-saving decisions when you go through a racetrack at high speeds. That was the first thing. And then mountains as well. I find that sometimes the mind gets in the way because we overthink things, um, we lose the intuition. And for me, spending time in mountains, me, and that's where they go slow to go fast. But for me, fits in here is about I need to push my body very, very hard to actually get past my own thinking, uh, to access my own intuition around change. And, um, and that's why I do that. I, I guess it's not the same thing for every person, but adventure gets me going in terms of understanding myself a lot better uh, because I get, to lo- I get to know myself a lot better when I, when I push things hard. Yeah, I like the focus that it brings. I decided this year to learn how to paraglide. So I started doing that. And what I like about it is that when you're doing it right, it's effortless. When you're doing it wrong, you're fighting your glider, you're fighting the wind, you're fighting. It just feels like it's this struggle the whole time if you're doing something wrong. Um, so for me, it's that almost zen-like state where if I'm doing it right, I'm not fighting it. And I think with change management, it should be the same. It should be, when you're doing it right, it should be easy. You know, it should be, people should be buying in and it should be, you know, um, something that's almost effortless. 
it can sometimes be difficult to convince leaders that change management is important. So what is your elevator pitch if you had to convince a senior leader in an organization that we have to do change management right? How would you convince them? Two questions. What would happen if you don't do this right now? Second thing is, please understand your role in this. If the role modeling is not there, don't even start. You will fail. The sponsorship, the leadership, and of course, third, you cannot outsource this role. Don't think the consultant is going to do it for you. You have a role to play. So if you don't want to do this, don't do it. Everybody below that person looks up to that person. And if they're not walking the talk, saying the right things, acting in the new way that we're expecting from our employees, then why would they then follow that person? If I may use an example, we sometimes use a a, a little bit of an example on a a safety project we did. And and we said to the CEO, um, you can put in programs, you can put in systems, you can put in training programs, you can bring in awareness campaigns, you can do whatever you want. But if you exit the factory gate without putting on your seatbelt, you have destroyed the whole project in one small act. And the higher you are in the organization, the more visible that becomes. It's sometimes very difficult to do the training piece of change management correct, you know, to get people out of their current jobs to come and attend training sessions and learn how to use this new change. So how do we make that part fun? I guess it has to do with the quality of the facilitator as well. <laughs> people like variety. Uh, I like to apply some very simple adult learning, uh, learning principles. Uh, classroom training, minimize that as much as you can. On the job training and some really good coaching really takes, uh, takes people far away. And to be sure that they know that the support for going beyond beyond their just their current classroom training is really important. So if they feel supported, it also helps a lot in getting them across the line. Yeah, I think coaching is one of the most neglected pieces probably of change management. We, it's very easy for us to do the communication piece and to do the, the training piece, but we, we forget how to um, give that on-the-job training and coach people properly. So how do, we, how do we include coaching into our change journey? in a way that's uh, not laborious for people. Mm. What I often do is when, when project managers puts up their project plans, um, I remind the senior leaders and the sponsors of the idea that if the project is over, often that's where the change starts. So there's a lot of work that happens before the time and there's a lot of work that happens during the change. But because the people learning, and you know, maybe we can talk about um, the change process as a learning journey for people, that it never coincides with a project plan. So you've got to plan for an embedding phase, which often goes way beyond the actual project if you want to get to full benefits realization. Or you need to plan for that in your project plan, which means you're going to have a longer project, which often people don't like to do. But um, you're right, the coaching part is something which I think also could be fun. People feel supported. They feel in, it gives this individual um, attention to them, um, that they feel that their hands are being held. It helps them across the line as well. It's almost as if people are racing towards the go-live date. Okay, let's get this project on the go and have this go-live date. And then for me, that's where the project actually starts. It only starts at go-live. That's Mm. when we actually only start working in the new way. And for us to embed that properly is really, really important. So what are some of the techniques that you've used to make the change stick 
in the end? How, how do you make sure that people accept it and use it? Uh, focus groups are sometimes useful. Doing a bit of a survey, and I, I often use the ADCAR process just to measure where people are. We do a thing called a people radar where we track an emotional and a cognitive journey. Um, we often revisit things like where are you in the change cycle because I think that's important if people went through that process to understand where are they stuck in the process, remind them of the skills they have that actually can get them across the line. Um, but again, those things takes time. It, it's not something you have to plan for that even after the project. You've got to make sure that you remind people of um, because they get stuck in certain phases of the change cycle. Um, and, you, and you need to be sure to move them across that. So you mentioned we can look at the change cycle as a learning journey. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. How do we do that? Well, it's an experiential workshop. So what I often do is I actually make sure that I use, I use people, uh, I, try, I, I try and f- help people find um, examples of, of real-life examples in their own lives where they are of a change that they haven't dealt with properly yet, something that still lingers somewhere in their past. And those things are quite powerful for them. So if they manage to dislodge this thing and actually process that well, it gives them a very powerful learning experience, and it actually builds a new neuropath for what a successful change journey looks like, from beginning right through to the end, as opposed to just going through a couple of steps for the organization. So revisiting that and coaching them through their change cycle is an actually very important part to get them across the line. Uh, one of the things that you focus on quite a lot is your strategy, culture, and transformation. How long does it take to change the culture of an organization? <laughs> if you have one leader that doesn't change, five years at least. <laughs> if you have leadership challenges and people, new people come in, uh, you'll be forever busy doing that. Uh, we use things like the Barrett um, uh, Values Assessment as an example, but really it's about leadership coaching and executive coaching to really help people connect with their values Connect them to who are they, connect them to the relationships, connect them to their networks, connect them to how important these relationships are and actually take them through that process. And if they don't go that journey, then culture change will probably be, it'll probably end up with posters on the wall with nicely described values and not properly unpacked and not properly lived by the people in the organization. No, I mean, I think you really have to connect the, the, the culture and strategic vision of the company with your own personal values. If those two things don't align, it's going to be very difficult to push a change yeah, through yeah. the organization. So, so what we often do is we actually help people understand their own value propositions by translating the strategy of the organization down to different levels, where each team, each department actually connects to their own vision, mission that's in, that's in alignment with the organization's one and we translate that all the way down to, you know, how do we agree, how we understand the values of the organization, what kind of behaviors do we hold each other accountable for, and make sure that that, that alignment, so if the organizational alignment is okay, then culture also follows that. But um, that, that's a, it's a long journey to get that done. So how important is it to get the senior leaders away beforehand and make sure that they're all aligned before we even start a, a journey on, of transformation? I, my personal view, um, they need to believe the change first, and they, be, they need to do the change for the right reasons as well. And if so, if, if they don't actually believe it themselves, that incongruence will show through. People will hear them. It matters not how good the hymn sheets are or the comms plans and how good the roadshows are organized. That truth will come out um, because people hear it. And I think often we underestimate how carefully people listen to senior leaders and how they say things and what they say. 
So for me, a critical piece of work for leadership is to actually internalize this change first, really believe this is the right thing to do, really believe in the people capability to take them along on the journey and then only start the process. So on your website, you use a lot of times you use the, f- the term people matter. Okay, so how do we make people feel that they really do matter when we take them through a change journey? Um, I'd like to use an example. When, um, when people experience things in their lives, from their childhood right through to where, wherever they find themselves in lives, certain events occur and they connect the dots. And often we find repeating patterns um, where a person experiences, let's say, a sense of failure. Maybe he had some difficulty with a subject at school. Maybe he was bullied and so forth. And eventually, when they start connecting these events, they form what we, what we call identity conclusions. And this is where narrative practice comes in. And often those identity conclusions are not really a true reflection of who they are. Because there were other events in their lives which we remind them of. So when we take them through workshops on how to work with narrative, we, we help them dis- rediscover those other events, uh, which was a different story to um, where they got to now. And, and, we st- and so we strengthen those stories about where they were successful in their lives, where, so that eventually a different identity conclusion, conclusion can occur um, that takes them away from what, what, what we term an, a stuck story to a new story, um, a new story of a new human being. And these, these practices are very important because people make different connections in terms of their experiences and they start focusing on the positive ones and not necessarily the negative ones which brings them to a different idea of, I'm not a failure, I'm actually just somebody who's learned, who's learned some lessons and so forth. Mm. And that's very useful for the process. Yeah, one of the exercises I like to do with senior leaders specifically is for them to do the internalization of the change and for them to write down their own unique story for why this change is important. Why is it important for the company? Why is it important for my department? Why is it important for me? And I get them to write that down. So they write it down and then share it with everybody in the room as well. And I think that's quite a effective way for people to internalize that change. Uh, mm. Do you do similar stuff as well? Yeah, I, again, from a narrative perspective, um, we talk about taking for granted beliefs and ideas. People don't, sometimes leaders don't like this because it challenges the status quo, very seriously so. It asks very challenging questions, but um, it's important for people to also see where do, where do these things come from because we take things for granted. We, we, we approach change in a way that says it must be like this. This is the way things work around you. And the question we should ask is, well, who says so? And by the way, who benefits by perpetuating this story? So if you start chatting, now people don't like that, but it's a very confrontational process. But it's very important in terms of leaders to understand that there are different ways. And this is also where possibility comes in, because there are always a different way. And, and when you climb mountains, you experience that. When you get to a summit after a 30-day 30, 30 climb, what you thought you were going to achieve is not what you achieve in the end. It's a different thing altogether. I can imagine. What is the future of change management? Is this an industry which is ready to be disrupted? I mean, everybody wants to disrupt industries at this point in time. Is it something that we need to be doing differently? Here's my answer to you. We have done some work by uh, through the Tavistock Institute in London where we started looking at how people perceive the digital world. And f- one thing that came out very strongly for us is one fundamental human need that remains is connectedness. And ironically, the more we think we connect people by digitizing the world, the more we are disconnecting people. So that's for me a very powerful lesson 
And if we think about it, disrupting the world, it, it sounds like going against, it's, it's, it sounds like resisting the world of being digitized, but it is actually bringing, and then you'll, you'll find some research coming through now very, very recently around how the digital world is actually, uh, I guess in a way, disconnecting humanity and not really connecting it because the human connection, the way that you and I are talking here now, is a lot more valuable and useful than, you know, I'm Facebooking you or I'm WhatsApping you and so forth. So um, that for me is what the disruption should look like. It's disrupting the disruptions by actually reconnecting people really because that's what matters. So creating more opportunities to have conversations, to speak to each other, to yeah. tell our stories to each other. Absolutely. Uh, and to make it more human. Absolutely. Okay, I've asked all of my questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention or talk about in this sphere? I think maybe the last thing I want to say is just how important understanding personal change is, how we often project our own images of change, how we bring our own stuff into change processes, and to be very, very aware and very careful of what we're projecting onto other people and to remain neutral in the process. I've learned this lesson very powerfully as being a, the lead for a major transformation process where three and a half thousand people were retrenched and I was going to be affected in the process myself. So for me, that's a really, really hard thing to do. But being aware of it and being mindful of that, I think is a key thing for us to be very mindful and respectful of where people are in their processes. Sometimes it's difficult to understand when the change is finished, when mm. we've achieved what we said we were going to achieve. How do we know when we've arrived at that place where we were hoping to get to? What is the importance of having something symbolic to show that we've mm. actually achieved what we set out mm. to achieve? Um, any thoughts around that? I guess, I mean, we, we have spoken about narrative practice. And in the narrative practice, we, when, we've, when we find the alternative story, which is the story we want, not the stuck story that we didn't want initially, there are ways and means for us to actually draw pictures about this thing, write storyboards about it, publish articles about it, and so forth. But I, I also think it's important that when we, I mean, maybe I can ask this question to you. How often is it that when we finish projects and another one comes along, maybe it's because it didn't work so well, how often do people say, oh, here we go again? Because we haven't closed it properly. Because we haven't actually announced. I mean, sometimes it could be as simple as saying, let us have a closing ceremony. Let's do a lessons learned. Let's share the documentation and actually close this thing and declare it finished. But it should not just be um, the project that's finished. It should also be the people that actually agree with it, this being finished. And maybe it's a measurement of a kind where we say uh, we've measured a, a level of efficiency. We've achieved a certain business case result and we declare that and we celebrate that and do it properly. Maybe that's a way to do it. Um, I think just generally we are we are not so good at finishing things before we start the next one. That's true. I mean, one of the, the, the last stages of any change project is the reinforcement. And part of the reinforcement stage is to celebrate success, to understand that we've achieved what we set out to achieve. And it would be great to understand how we can do that. You know, how do we cement that change in the end? How do we make sure that people understand that we've, we've achieved what we set out to achieve and, and reinforce that. It may sound funny, but I, I think maybe simple things like 
producing an artifact uh, of a kind. Maybe it's a statue. Maybe it's a painting of what we've been through. Maybe it's a, a storyboard which we, we put up and we, uh, and, and we share that throughout the organization where everybody, you know, puts their signature down or uh, puts their little color or their little animal into the painting. Something like that. Because I do think we underestimate the value of symbolism in actually closing off things because we only look at the technical side of it and we look at the benefits and we think that's it now. So I think there could be quite a creative way for us to actually do that. But uh, the point is not to underestimate the impact of actual symbolism um, to close something off really properly. I think that ties back nicely to you were talking about how people are experiencing change in their own personal lives. And there's so many symbolic rituals that we go through in our personal lives. So why shouldn't, why should we exclude that from our work and, and corporate or work company lives? You know, why, why do we have all of these, uh, rituals in our personal lives, but not in the, where we're working? Yeah, absolutely agree with that. Thank you very much for joining me today, Rake. It has been wonderful to speak to you. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. And, and from my side, thank you for the honor of being here. I truly value this conversation as well. And I, I've, been, I've been learning a lot from you as well in this process. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. It's been my pleasure. joining me on the show today if there's anything we've been reminded of today is that people are the most important part of the change journey for show notes uh, and more information about the show go to solidgoldstudios.co.za forward slash unchange where you'll find links to more information and other episodes <laughs>